Welcome to another episode of The Wheat Profit, a podcast where we explore all things wheat. The goal of this podcast is to provide Saskatchewan wheat producers with resources and information to increase profitability and sustainability on their farm. I will be interviewing experts in the field about current production issues and the latest wheat research. I'm your host, Haley Tatro, the Agronomy Extension Specialist with the Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission. Today, we will be discussing the life cycle management and research of wireworms with Dr. Haley Catton. Haley is a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lethbridge, focusing on cereal crop entomology, plant-insect interactions, insect ecology, and integrated pest management. Her research program contributes to sustainable crop production through reducing losses to pest damage and lowering pesticide costs. Haley, welcome to the Wheat Profit, and thank you for taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you for having me. So we're excited to talk with you a lot about wireworms and a little bit about uh, your research on them, but mostly about, um, I guess we'll just start with what is the life cycle of a wireworm and can you tell us a little bit about the pest? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so when we talk about wireworms, we're not talking about worms at all, actually. We're actually talking about a beetle. So what we would call the wireworms is the larval stage of the click beetle. Uh, so the larval stage lives in the soil and it kind of looks like a worm, right? And it, it eats plant roots, uh, it eats seeds, uh, and then eventually it grows up and goes through a transformation and becomes that adult click beetle uh, that will live on the soil surface for a couple of weeks in the spring. And uh, when I say the click beetle, I mean lots of different species of click beetles. So on the prairies, we have about two or 300 click beetle species. Can you believe that? Um, but for farming, only about four or five of them are major pests on the prairies. But what makes wireworm different than some other pests is that the term wireworm is kind of encapsulating multiple species of click beetles and wireworms, and each of those species have different life cycles and different behaviors. So, but in general, we're talking about, uh, let's see, how, where do we start? Let's start in the spring where an overwintered beetle will live in the soil, right? And it'll emerge in the springtime. And for a few weeks in the springtime, those adults will become active and they'll mate sometimes. Sometimes they don't need to mate. And then they lay eggs in the soil. Those eggs will hatch in early summer and become brand new little hatchlings of wireworm that will live in the soil. Uh, those little babies, we call them neonates. And in that first year, they're pretty fragile. Like they need the right temperatures, they need the right moisture. Uh, and they would continue to eat roots all through that summer and then overwinter in the soil uh, and emerge the next spring in the soil as what we call resident wireworms. And those are the ones that are going to live for a few years and they're, they're tough. They can move around, they can eat, they can go down a meter deep into the soil to escape harsh temperatures, <laughs> right? So then a wireworm in general would be a resident wireworm for about three years or so, give or take. Uh, and then one summer, it decides it's ready to become an adult and it'll undergo metamorphosis in the soil over winter and emerge the next spring as an adult. So we're talking about multiple years in the soil in the larval stage and only a few weeks as an active adult in the spring. So the resident wireworms then, that's what's causing the economical damage in our crops. Yeah, that's right. And so are there host crops, what types of crops are host crops, I guess is the question. Right. Well, uh, we know that they're generalist feeders. That means they'll eat on just about anything. Uh, they really like cereals, grasses, 
uh, we've seen them eating pulses. We don't know how much they eat canola. They don't seem to damage canola, but we don't know if they're eating those roots in the ground anyway. Uh, but they can also take a whole year off eating if they don't like whatever's planted in a field. So one of the things that's challenging about wireworms is, is its long life cycle and its ability to eat everything and take a break from eating if, if it needs to. So basically you're talking about field level infestation or population of wireworms that will just keep going and, and going and going no matter almost what you plant. So, so really hard to, to beat out with a crop rotation then. Yeah, we've seen no luck with that here in the prairies. Uh, some research out east in Prince Edward Island have, have found that brown mustard will knock back the populations and also buckwheat. But they also have different species of wireworms out on the east coast and the west coast than we do on the prairies. So <laughs> across Canada, there's about 20 to, 20 to 30 species of wireworm pests. And when you hear about people talking about it in the Maritimes or the Atlantic provinces or in BC, they're talking about European invasive species that have uh, you know, been brought to Canada by accident. But here in the prairies, our pest species are native species. So they behave differently than the invasive species. So uh, we have not found a crop rotation on the prairies here that would be effective and economical to reduce populations. So they're quite a complex insect, but let's talk a little bit about how they actually cause economical damage and how often we see that. Right. Uh, well, it depends what you're growing. So if you're growing a cereal or a pulse crop, your main concern would be spring feeding. Uh, because those wireworms are active in the spring, they, um, first of all, they, they overwinter in the ground, right? And when soil temperature rises in the spring and the seeds in the ground, those seeds produce carbon dioxide as they grow. And that is the mag magnet for the wireworms. So the wireworms will detect that carbon dioxide and they'll come to that germinating seed or that seedling and start chewing. So they're ch a chewing underground pest. And seeds and seedlings can be very vulnerable to chewing damage in, you know, they can be killed, they can be stunted. So if you're growing, a, like I said, a, a cereal or a pulse, you would notice wireworm damage in, as crop thinning early in the year, right? You'd have dead patches in your crop. And, and crop thinning can have, well, obviously you're losing some yield, but it can also create some weed management problems, uh, even some soil erosion problems. So it changes how you have to manage your field. Now, if you're growing a root crop like potatoes or carrots, then the, the concern is a little bit different, right? So a seed potato would be planted in the spring. It's not too bad if wireworms feed on that, right? But if it's feeding on the daughter potatoes, the ones you wanna harvest and sell, uh, that's where the economical damage comes in for potatoes. So you're not, they're not losing a lot of biomass, but they're losing market value because those new potatoes are getting damaged. And that would involve summer feeding, summer and fall. So it depends what you're growing. So in sense. wheat, for example, mm -hmm. uh, when would be the biggest, like when is their window to cause a, like damage for economics? Yeah, the seeding and seedling stages. Yeah. Early season. And so do you so, see it pretty well distributed throughout the field or is it more isolated in certain areas? Well, that's a really, really good question. And all we have to go on for that is kind of anecdotal observations from producers, right? There's no actual data on that. But what, what people say is that it occurs in a patchy formation, right? So there's, it's, it's not the whole field evenly, it's certain sections of the field. 
I've heard producers mention there's more damage seen on hilltops where, where conditions are drier. I don't know if there's more wireworms there or the plants are just more vulnerable to damage if they're water stressed. So we have a lot of questions that we don't know about with these insects. We know that in the larval stage in the soil, they won't move that far horizontally, right? Maybe a few meters here and there. Uh, so one project that I have starting this year is to use overhead imagery to see if we can detect those patches uh, to help producers find out, first of all, if they have a wireworm problem and where. Lots of questions to be answered with these insects. Yeah, it definitely is, is a pretty complex issue. And I know, um, like you said, there's, there's a lot, you're doing a lot of research on that. And um, so what kind of advice would you give producers if they, su they suspect that maybe they do have some thinning due to wireworms? What would you suggest for them to do? Yes, that is an excellent question. And one of the first uh, principles in integrated pest management is to find out what pests that you have. So if a producer sees crop thinning in the spring, uh, the springtime is the right time to be digging around, around those patches, around those thinned patches, around the edge of those patches, dig up some plants, look in the soil, see if you catch these insects there doing the feeding damage. Because other things like cutworms can cause uh, kind of similar problems, but they must, but cutworms would be treated differently than wireworms. For example, there are within season rescue treatments that you could apply um, to damage cutworm or to control cutworms, but not for wireworms. So what I advise producers to do is to catch those insects while they're doing the damage. They can save some of them in a little pill bottle um, with some alcohol, send them to me, I'll identify them. And notice in the field where, where they are. Um, and I guess don't assume right? Because there can be, could be frost damage that's causing crop thinning, right? It could be even like a pesticide spill or something or other insects. Mm -hmm. so, so you really have to know what pest that you're working with. Yeah. And so do you think that um, there's a good method then of determining thresholds and are there um, certain factors that maybe increase the risk of developing a high uh, uh, wireworm population? Right, so on the prairies or almost anywhere, we don't have an economic threshold for wireworms. So there have been studies uh, in the US where almost every field they, they surveyed had wireworms, right? But in low amounts and then some of them had them in higher amounts, but we don't know how many wireworms is too much, right? Or how many wireworms it takes to cause economic damage. So we don't have thresholds. That's something we're trying to work on. Uh, it's it's gonna be, part of my overhead imagery project. Uh, if we can detect a difference in number of wireworms in the dead patches versus in patches that look totally fine in the field, then that might be a pointer towards an economic threshold level. Uh, what was the second part of your question? The second part was uh, like things that increase your risk factor. So oh, yeah, I was yeah. always told, you know, like hay fields, um, something being planted, say wheat being planted into something that just came out of hay is higher risk. Are there other factors like that that you can mention? Right, I've heard that too. Uh, it's been mentioned in the literature. I haven't seen any studies to show that, right? It's, it's all anecdotal observations, but we know that the wireworms here in the prairies are adapted to the prairie grassland conditions, right? Because they're native species here. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. 
In terms of crop rotation, I mean, we always recommend for various reasons to have a, a good and diverse crop rotation. Uh, how much that would knock back or your wireworm population, we're not sure. We really don't know yet how or why some fields have so many wireworms and other fields don't. Like I, I part of the study that I just finished up, um, a three-year study, we found one field on a farm that was loaded with wireworms and then a field next to it, almost nothing, right? So what is the difference between those fields? Is it some kind of habitat moisture related thing or is it a crop rotation history or a chemical history or chemical residues? Like there's just, we just don't know what, what causes an infestation. So the only control we have at the moment right now is uh, chemical seed controls. So we're kind of more reactive when it comes to wireworms at the moment, because we don't know how to prevent their infestations just yet. Yeah. So I guess then keeping records of fields that you've had wireworm, wireworm mm -hmm. issues in the past would be key. And then I guess yeah. treating your seed with uh, an insecticidal seed treatment. And so I know that there's come out, there's a new insecticide, insecticidal seed treatment, sorry, that came out, uh, Taraxa, I believe it's from BASF, yeah. but can you maybe touch on how that's a little bit different than our traditional um, insecticidal seed treatments? Yeah, so if I can go back in time a little bit, uh, wireworms have been a problem for over 100 years here in the prairies, and there's been work done by entomologists since the 1920s and before even. <clears throat> and up until 2004, so from around the 19... I guess it would be around the 1960s somewhere till about 2004, there were pesticides available that would wipe out wireworm populations for years at a time. Uh, but those have been deregistered due to you know, environmental concerns. So since 2004, we have not had a reliable insecticide that would knock back wireworm populations in a meaningful way. The pesticides that we have had, which have included the neonicotinoid seed treatments, uh, they would protect crops on an annual basis by paralyzing wireworms for a number of weeks after exposure to those seed treatments. But those same wireworms were there in the next spring hungry, waiting to feed, right? So that's been what we've had up till, uh, uh, I guess, this year. Just this past fall, there's been a new insecticide approved. I guess the trade name is Taraxa. I refer to it as broflanolide, which is the chemical name for it. And there's been so far one study published on this chemical in BC, and it showed uh, that uh, there was about 70% wireworm population knocked back from the seed treatment. And when it, when it was compared head to head to the neonics and uh, a chemical in the diamide category, uh, those other chemicals did not knock back the populations, but the broflanolide did. One thing I have to mention, though, is that the currently available diamide on the market was not part of that study. So we don't have a head-to-head -head comparison between those two market options at the moment. Mm -hmm. right? But what that study showed was broflanolide was reducing populations by about 70% in BC, which is meaningful, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, you'd mentioned a little bit earlier that there are different species kind of on the coastal region. So are those species... Mm -hmm. In BC, are those similar to, to what we're facing here? Right. So the species in that study was not a species we have here in the prairies. Okay. So if there's data for prairie species, I don't. I'm not aware of it mm -hmm. yet. But uh, there's always new information coming out about them. 
about uh, prairie studies. Yeah, it's a relatively new product. And so it'll mm -hmm. be exciting to see how it works for producers this year as an option. And hopefully we'll yeah. get some more data on that soon. Um, yeah. So I guess talking about research then, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your uh, upcoming research project with Wireworms? Right, we have a few, actually, we have a few. So the one I mentioned before was about advancing monitoring and uh, decision decision making practices for wireworms. So because seed treatments are the only real um, control measure we have, I've and that combined with the fact that we don't really know when they're needed, <laughs> um, I think the next step is to help producers decide in an easier way. How do they know they have a wireworm problem, and when is it worth their time and their money to invest in a chemical seed treatment? And those are big questions. They're hard to answer. But uh, we're investigating a few ways to monitor wireworms uh, in a faster way than, than we can now. So the way things are done now is we can put some bait traps in the soil. Those usually just germinating wheat seed or some people use oatmeal. Uh, you put them in the field pre-seeding, they produce carbon dioxide and the wireworms, if they're there, will come to those traps. And then you dig them up and you count them. But we also don't, well, we don't know well, first of all, that's time and a time and labor intensive to do that. And we also don't know how many wireworms you need to, to cause a problem, right? So this project is all about improving bait trap monitoring, but also using other ways to detect wireworm populations like overhead imagery. Can we fly a drone over a field and find those patches, identify a wireworm problem, and then know that next year you need to invest in a seed treatment? That's what we're gonna look into. There's also been some exciting development on the prairies for monitoring wireworms in their adult stage. So remember there are beetles, click beetles in their adult stage. And when those beetles emerge in the spring, some of the species, some of the females will produce a pheromone or like a perfume to attract the males to mate. And, and I'm part of a team out of BC uh, that have identified some new pheromones uh, for two of the species of wireworms we have here in the prairies. So that's, that's a huge advancement because we could possibly use above ground pheromone traps to monitor for adults, which will hopefully tell us an idea or give us an idea of what population levels are in the soil. But that's very new and we're trying to figure out how, how what it means, right? Or how to use it. So yeah. the, the, we're trying to find easier ways to get to the same information of how many wireworms are in a field. Definitely. And it's, a, it's an exciting field of research because it, like you said, you know, in this podcast, we've found a lot of spots where we, you know, need more information. And so mm. that research is really addressing that, which is awesome to see. Um, yeah, I guess the, the thing that comes to my mind when we talk about bait balls is like you mentioned, they, the wireworms don't move much horizontally. So how yeah. accurate really are they? So, you know, they're coming up and down. Um, but that actually brings me to another question, which are there um, environmental conditions that you have noticed? Maybe it's just anecdotal um, data, but do you notice like, say, if it's a wet spring, are they more likely to be abundant or and come up to the surface or if it's versus a dry spring or something like that? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, well, they're sensitive to soil temperature in the spring and they don't like to be too dry. But... I don't know. I don't know about the springtime. I think it depends what's planted and when. Mm -hmm. 
the conditions that are good for the plant are usually good for the wire room, right? Warm, moist. <laughs> so there's a couple different schools of thought, right? Like if it's a drought year, the wire rooms may be more likely to feed in the plants because that's where the moisture is. Uh, and the plants may be more likely to be damaged by that feeding. So I, I don't know, but I could hypothesize a few things. <laughs> yeah, uh, one thing I want to mention is we have another project too that's starting this year on RNAI. Have, have you heard of that before? I've read a little bit about it, but yeah. can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so RNAI is a kind of a, that's the way to explain it, is like a genetic pesticide, kind of. So, so it would be something that you would apply to your seed as a treatment eventually, right? And instead of say a, a chemical pesticide, it's a piece of RNA, just like kind of like DNA. So it's a piece of genetic material that the wireworms would eat and then it would attach into their stomach and, and disable them. But it would be very, very species specific just to the wireworms we want to target. Uh, we're a long ways off from that, right? We've just started the, uh, just this year are going to be starting the exploration of how to construct something like that for wireworms. But RNAi, in my opinion, has the potential to be the most surgical specific pest control that we can possibly imagine, right? You could tailor it to a certain species that you want. So oh, yeah. that's, is there an, an example of an RNAi uh, seed treatment elsewhere or this is something totally new? Uh, in the U.S., RNAi is, uh, is approved as a GMO. Actually, it's a GMO plant in corn. So I think it's corn borer that would chew in the plant. The plant would produce this RNAi in response and then disable the insects that way. So it's been approved in the U.S. I'm not sure if it's been approved in Canada yet. Uh, but it's a huge field in entomology right now. Huge. Because can you imagine if we could get specific on what insects we want to knock back? and then just leave all the beneficials, all the other soil arthropods could be untouched. That exactly. would just be massive. Yeah. It, it requires a lot of uh, research in terms of what genes are being expressed by the wireworms at different parts of their life cycle and by what species, because you want to get really specific. Yeah, so it'll take a lot of research by the sounds of it, just kind of nailing down each different species and, and you know yeah. what their habitat is and they're more about their life cycles and stuff like that. So yeah. it's an exciting field of research for sure. And it's definitely been Absolutely. you know an issue broadly across the prairies for us. So it's exciting to see the research you've got coming out. Thank you. Yeah, wireworm, you know, the more I learn about it, just the more interesting it gets. It's very complex and complicated. We're talking about an underground soil pest of multiple species that's patchy, um, that moves up and down in the soil. So if you sample for it at the wrong time, you're not gonna find it even if it's there. You know, so it's, it's really a case of kind of getting to know your enemy and getting really close with them and figuring out where they're vulnerable. And uh, learning more about wireworms is really important. So just, I wanna mention that we have a field guide, an AAFC or Agriculture Agri-Food Canada field guide coming out on wireworms specifically for the prairies uh, coming out in the next few months. So that's co-authored by myself and several other colleagues from across Canada. And it's gonna be a really nice piece of work if I can say so myself, right? It'll have all the background on their their species biology, the history of what the wireworm problems and research on the prairies, close up pictures that you won't find anywhere else. 
management options, um, questions for next, you know, research needs. So it'll be a pretty comprehensive, hopefully informative uh, resource for producers and agronomists. Awesome. That'll definitely be very useful for sure. Um, I guess that I do have one question just as we were talking, sure. there, I was thinking about it. Um, you know how, like when you're scouting for cutworms, there's, you know, going in the morning is a better time to go. Is there similar strategies for scouting for uh, wireworms? Not really the time of day. Not really. I mean, if, if the soil is warm, you want to dig a little bit deeper for them. Mm -hmm. uh, but usually in the spring when they're the most active, it's not that hot anyway. Yeah. So it, unlike cutworms, you don't have to worry about night or day versus night activity. Perfect. All right. Yeah. Well, if, is there anything else that you feel that we should cover or, cause I think I pretty much covered everything I wanted to get through, but. Oh yeah. You know, one thing I'd like to say about wireworms is for some people, they are a huge problem. So it mm -hmm. seems to be a persistent problem in certain fields, but I've also had producers say to me, um, they're like, I don't think it's that big of a, of a deal. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. Like we don't know. So we're hoping that the research that we're doing can help people and producers make informed decisions of whether it is a problem for them and whether or not they should be investing in these chemical seed treatments. Because our goal here is to um, allow people to make the best decisions for their own farm. And that would involve reducing unnecessary pesticide use, right? You don't want to buy a product if you don't need it. Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of acknowledge that for some people, it's not a problem. For some fields, it's not a problem. And for some fields, it is. And the, the trick is to find out which is which, as, as opposed to kind of just guessing, you know? Yeah, definitely record keeping, I think, is really key here. And it's scouting, right? It's definitely producer to producer. And if they have the problem and they know about it, they know all about it. And then there's a lot of people who have never had an issue with it, or maybe it's been yep. missing. It's definitely something that, you know, we need to be talking about in, in podcasts like this and in fact sheets and, and in this, you know, resource that you guys are putting out as the AFC. That's really awesome to see. Thank you. Yeah, it's exciting. I hope to keep working on this insect uh, so that it becomes not such a big newsmaker as it is now. <laughs> Usually with insects, right, the more news you make, the, the bigger the problem the insect is. We're trying to reduce that. Yep. <laughs> Great. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being with us here today and taking the time out of your day to come talk to us all about wireworms. It was very beneficial and, and yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Haley. Thank you for listening to Wheat Profit, brought to you by the Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission. For more information on wheat agronomy, marketing, advocacy, and research, please go to saskwheat.ca or follow us on Twitter where we are at Saskweet.